how, you know, we can have these really different people with these different perspectives sit down and, and be and disagree sometimes really vehemently, but just be polite and listening and not demonizing each other, but just saying, you know, oh, I don't, I don't see that. And, I, I, and, and it just made me really respect the, you know, without sounding too existential, but the human possibility is like you said earlier, like we really can be a whole lot more than we realize. You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry has spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Welcome back, listening audience. It's been a minute. Uh, thanks for your patience with us. We've uh, we've been busy, Mike, haven't we? We have. It's been awesome. Yeah. It's good to be back, though. Yeah, I know. I really enjoy these conversations, and uh, we have Sherry Moloch with us. It is Moloch, right? It's not Moloch. Yep. Okay. Um, uh, she's she's a psychologist uh, from, from the East Coast. We'll let her introduce herself. Uh, here in a minute, but um, I think it's important to let the listening audience know, Mike, what what it is that we've been doing. Because as much as we love these these podcasts, they, they do take up a lot of time. And, and I think you know, if people are really interested in following what we're doing, we should catch them up. So, you want to talk about the the part two of the the course that we just did? Yeah, we had our cultural competence uh, second part. Uh, which is great. We had a great turnout. We actually had a bunch of guest speakers this time around, so we switched it up a little bit. Um, I was excited for that. Uh, we've also been been working hard behind the scenes to work with different counties and different states to come and have speaking engagements. We're probably going to go on a little college tour here. I mean, we got yeah. a lot going on. Yeah, it's exciting, and I think what we're really jazzed about is that we get to bring this knowledge to people who previously may not have gotten to experience it, like you referenced colleges and universities. Uh, Learning about firearms culture isn't just for the clinical community, it's for the broader community so that we can destigmatize a lot of what goes on and invite people in who, you know, we may not normally have invited if we have a suspicion about what we think it means to fall into a certain category or belong to a certain label, right? And being able to push through that with some knowledge and information uh, deliverance is, is great. I say it frequently, like I'm, I, I favor education over restriction. Uh, I think when you, and that goes all the way down to parenting, right? Everybody knows I'm a family therapist by trade. Um, but if you're, if you're educating your children, if you're educating your communities and you're offering good, accurate information that's not corrupted by conspiracy theories, then people are really finding themselves empowered to make an, an enlightened, informed choice on what direction they want to go. And it really busts through a lot of judgmentalism when you have accurate information presented in a, in a compassionate, non-attached way. And I think, I think we do that and with our courses when we're training these people up. And uh, what we're doing is we're, we're making an invitation for the roughly 50% of Americans who live with a gun or own, uh, sorry, own a gun or live with somebody who does to come in and seek help. Uh, when previously they may have been suspicious about what it means to get help and what counselors can do and what they can't do and so forth. So uh, 
on the heels of that, uh, we introduced Sherry because she is doing something similar in a couple of different ways and bringing two cultures together that previously haven't, I think, uh, intermingled a whole lot and bringing knowledge and wisdom and accurate information to help destigmatize and bring help and healing. So Sherry, please introduce yourself to the audience and uh, we'll kick it off. Well, before I do that, I just want to thank both of you all for inviting me to join you with this podcast on this really, really important topic. For me, it's it's my life's work, and it's something I've had passion about for about 25 years now. So I'm Sherry Davis-Molock. I have many hats. I am a, a associate professor of psychology at George Washington University, where I've trained graduate students, but I also do research in two, primarily in two areas. One is suicide prevention mostly for youth between 15 and 24 in the African-American community. And I do those interventions in faith communities. And the other line of research I do is HIV prevention for the same group of people, young African-American youth uh, in faith communities. And that's because I have another hat, which is I'm also a licensed and ordained minister. My husband and I co-pastor the beloved community church in a suburb of Washington, DC. And so I, I like to be fully present in whatever I do. And that's, that's the way I can be fully all of who I am, a clinician and a teacher and a researcher and also a pastor to really help to reduce suicide rates in the Black community where the rates are highest amongst that particular age group, 15 to 24. I've got to unmute myself. That's being a bad host. Uh, you mute yourself so you can clear your throat and nobody hears it, but then you forget to turn it off. So. Um, I love that you said that because we spend a lot of time emphasizing in our trainings and our talks and our podcasts and anywhere we go, the ability for human beings to be many things simultaneously. And I, I think it just helps to, to create an environment where we don't box people up and label them, even though that's our temptation because it gives us a sense of certainty and comfort when we know it's like, I know exactly who you are because of this label. Um, right. Then it's like, well, well, I'm also this, and I'm also this, and I'm also this, and I'm also this other thing, and now what do you think? Like, you know, your head goes crazy. So um, I appreciate that you outlined it that way and that you can be fully present in all of them and still do the same work. That's that's so huge, and I I really invite people to, to embrace that they can be many things simultaneously. That's awesome. You, uh, I think it's, yeah, go ahead. it's important, too, because, you know, those 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 roles that I have and the training I have they're not they're not in opposition to each other right, right? there's people always ask me is there tension I'm like no because they inform each other so yep. most of my research ideas have come from my clinical experience and then watching people suffer in silence has come from my faith journey so you know for me the faith community is a natural place to do this because black people go to church more than any other racial ethnic group and the churches can potentially be a place for healing and so to me, it's just a natural fit. I want to come back to that at some point and have you talk a little bit more about the the integration of psychology and spirituality, because I think that's really important. I think a lot of people think that those two stand opposite each other, and they're somehow mutually exclusive, and that's not been my experience either. Uh, but uh, you and Mike met through a project called Convergence, and either one of you can speak to this. I haven't been on the phone calls. I was, I was on one phone call like a year ago, but then I wasn't on the follow-ups. But I want to spend some time talking about that. So uh, I don't know who wants to go first, but let's talk a little bit about Convergence and how you guys met and what that group has been doing. Okay. Well, Sherry, let me just start off by saying we're on this group. There's, there's wow, I mean, how many, 20 people, 20 different yeah, groups yeah. all coming together. And one of the things that was really neat about Sherry when we first met was 
she flat out said like, okay, I'm here for the suicide prevention. I'm representing this and this and that. Um, I'm going to be completely honest with you guys. I don't know anything about guns. I, 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 I'm new to this world. Some of you, I don't get it. You're going to have to explain it to me. <laughs> Which I, well, Mike I, I was, was one of those people who was really patient with me because I he's being nice. I said, why do you need a gun? So right. I, said, I don't understand why you have a gun. It's a, fair, so it's a fair question. They were going too. on. I was like, okay, why so many? You know? So I was very naive to the gun culture. But I think um, one of the things I really liked about Mike and a couple of the other people on the call was that they were really patient and didn't take my my questions as offensive. And I didn't intend them to be. I was just trying to be, you know, transparent and say, I really, when you're not in that culture, you really don't get it. And so, um, like, it was, I initially never thought about using firearms for entertainment. That just was, like, really completely foreign to me. Um, And so I think what I loved about working in that group was, one, I learned a lot about the gun ownership community and things that they are themselves doing to help prevent suicide deaths, which was something I didn't know. Um, I think Mike, I'm sure he can talk about it, and you all are familiar with his program. But I've been blasting about your program everywhere, Mike. So I was like, you know, something really basic as putting in suicide prevention information and the information that you get when you buy a gun. It might seem like a small thing to you, but for me, it's almost brought tears to my eyes because you'll reach a group of people that will never see a mental health professional, and yet they can get the same information. So that we don't have to have super elaborate research designs with random clinical trials and all sort of stuff that we do to make a difference in someone's life. And also because Mike's group is a trusted messenger, and that's really important for people to hear that. That's one of the reasons why I do the work in the church, because the, the people in the church, the leaders in the church are trusted messengers. And if you don't trust the messenger, you know, you lose the audience. And so that the audience doesn't even hear you. I, I love what you said earlier, Jake, about being enlightened and informed, because I think one of the things I hope that my work helps people do is be fully informed before you make a decision. So my decision to do convergence was my kind of chiding myself that I always say it's important for different viewpoints to hear each other. And yet I was not putting myself in a situation where I heard different viewpoints. And so I was kind of telling myself, put my money where my mouth is. <laughs> and say, you really think that's important. You don't do it yourself. So what can you say? And the bottom line is people are going to own guns. And people who are in this community don't want people outside of it telling them what to do. So therefore, we need to develop partnerships so that we can have a common understanding of what's going on. And we do have a common goal, which is we don't want people to die from firearms. So then how can we work together as a team to make sure that happens? And that's the end of our program. No. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, you summed that up beautifully. It's so well put. I know, it's so well put. I, I, I do want to highlight that you, uh, you, you mentioned that we can make a difference without necessarily going through the, uh, you know, according to Hoyle, uh, scientific process or whatever. And I think that's really important. We have to at least be able to prove the concept as well, right, before we um, say that it works. And I think a lot of times these days we're so wrapped around the axle as a clinical community, at least. And these days also includes COVID days with the scientific and medical communities where it's like, no, you can't do that unless we've got, you know, all the RCTs in place. Right. And it's like, 
randomized clinical trial for those of you who aren't familiar with the lingo. And it's like, no, we can try stuff if we have a good theory behind it. Right. That's how that's how people evolve to this point. This it's only in the last couple of decades that we got all, you know, spun up about needing to study things and peer review them and publish them before we can move forward. That's you know, uh, do do no harm, right? If you're doing if you're doing no harm and it seems like it'll help, try it and see if it works. I agree, yeah. So thanks for that. That's uh, that's a good point. Well taken. Mike, you were going to say something. I was just going to say, so, you know, we, going into firearms, that going into convergence is not understanding firearms. And, and your understanding would say that like a level 10, right? Like not understanding that there, there are different reasons for owning firearms or doing things with firearms. Um, how do you feel that that team has done? And, and, you know, I'm asking you to just be candid about it is like, how do you feel like it's done addressing the issues in your community? Um, because I think there's different issues when it comes to firearms with different communities. This is why I love Mike. See, this is why he's like my best friend. Because <laughs> I've brought this up a couple of times in the group. So I, I think on one hand, Convergence has done a really good job with bringing us together as a group with, with divergent um, viewpoints and constituencies. I think that we did a really good job in talking about some of the issues. But as Mike knows, I said several times, I think there are still cultural differences about what it means to own a gun and how that's perceived. And I think a lot of the things that we talked about presume that people are buying guns in places where you can legally buy a gun. And I was saying that for the young people that I work with, they don't go to a store or Walmart to buy a gun. They get their firearms predominantly from the street. I shared a couple of anecdotes. I've had um, kids who are at risk for suicide who when we're going through um, risk assessment, one of the things you ask is what method are you thinking of using? And I will, I ask, is there a firearm in the home? And they'll say, no, but I can get one. And they jokingly said to me, I, you know, how long I can get you one. I can leave your office, go get one and come back in about 30 minutes. Those guns are not registered. So, so what we didn't do as good of a job as was talking about how kids access guns that are not through legal methods and whether or not the things that we talk about for preventing will work. Now, one thing I did like a lot about the discussion was it talked about responsible ownership and it talked about storage. I had no idea the different ways that you can safely store a firearm. So that's the good news. The, the, what I'm not sure of yet is will that work with young people who get guns off the street? <laughs> that was a, that's the part I'm not sure of. Yeah, the young people thing is really an issue that I don't know that our community wholly addresses because of what you just said. I, I think our community, when I say our community, not the clinical community, but the gun community, one of those other things that I wear two hats with, um, when the when we're talking about the gun community, the gun community is so overwhelmingly white and male and middle aged that I don't know that they even know that there's a problem with access. So they think, oh, just lock it up in a safe, right? Um, so outreach, I think, has to be a component that we investigate too. We have we have to go into the lower SES socioeconomic status neighborhoods and communities. We need to go into the urban communities where resources aren't um, readily available, and we do need to start talking to the youth. My frustration is just like in I also work in suicide prevention before I did uh, gun suicide prevention, and. Um, the frustration is that when you start to talk about integrating something into the school curriculum, 
you get a bristling from the administrators, the teachers, and even the parents, and they say, I, I don't want that in my kid's uh, consciousness, you know, whether it be sex education or drug abuse education or suicide intervention or now, you know, firearms access. Um, I think they, they, they have stigma in their minds about all of those topics, all those sensitive subjects, if you will. And we want to preserve children's innocence, for sure. Um, but I'll go back to what I said earlier about education. Um, if we, if we're not educating them, they're ignorant. And so do we want them acting out of that ignorance and not knowing what to do when they encounter things like sexual temptation and drugs and alcohol and suicidal ideation and, you know, loose firearms, uh, or do we want them at least to have some fundamental working knowledge about it? And, and, and getting that message through, I think is really important because you can talk to the adults all day long and it doesn't matter what demographic you're talking to the chances of it making it into the kids' ears are slim to none. So the other challenge to me though, and kind of my irritation with that attitude is I want to almost say sometimes to school systems and parents, like what planet are you living on? Because these kids already know where firearms are. Absolutely. Absolutely. These kids already know how to get one. So the, the people who are naive and not, and not knowledgeable are the adults, not the kids. That's one. Two, and I'm sure you know this better than I do, talking about gun ownership and safe storage does not make someone kill themselves. So there's no danger in talking about this information and creating safety. And I would even venture that maybe you would save some adult lives if the kids knew how to store safely, right? They could impart that knowledge to their parents. So I don't I don't see this as a one or the other. I think that kids know already know about how to get a firearm, as I said earlier, if they wanted to get one. So why would we want to talk to them about, okay, given that there might be a firearm in your home, and also something Mike brought up in our last Convergence meeting, you might be visiting a home, maybe your home doesn't own one, but you're visiting a home that does. Yep. And so wouldn't it be nice if kids could do some peer-to-peer stuff with talking about st- storage and safety in ways where they would hear each other, but they not necessarily hear adults. I think Part of it is also an ignorance about what I call developmental issues. Like what, what are the, who are the important messengers when people are young? It's not usually adults. <laughs> so unless they're TikTok influencers, right? So maybe some peer-to-peer stuff would work. And also, it's not going to make them um, use a firearm because you teach them about firearm safety. It's not going to increase the likelihood that they would use a firearm. What increases the likelihood of using any method, not just firearms? Um, for suicide attempts is, is accessibility. Yeah. You're alluding to something I think we, we use in the clinical world, which is a concept called projection. And what happens is the parents will project their own fears onto the children. And really what you're saying is we can introduce this to the children, but what happens if the children come home and they're curious about it and the parents don't know what to do and then and the parents right. are ignorant and then they're like, Oh, wait, let's just not talk about it. Right. Um, but you know, at maximum, maybe the, the kid gets interested and wants to learn more about guns, go, you know, ask the parents for a class to go to the range, and then they become super extra safe beyond just the talking points that we introduce in the classroom. You know, that's possible. But if you have a parent who's uncomfortable with that idea, they're going to project their own discomfort and say, no, 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 we just don't need to do that. And it, and it shuts it down, you know, before it even gets off the ground. And I would think if you had a firearm in your home, you should be talking to your kids about safe storage Absolutely. and what they can't, what they're allowed and what they're not allowed to do. Just like, any other, again, any other method. So I think, um, you know, when our kids were really little, we, we 
put child safety caps on medicine. Why? Because we wanted to prevent there to be an accident. We put them in high places and we also talked to them about, you know, this is not candy. And we did other things. We made sure we took those kinds of, um, took pills and stuff like that out of my purse, for example, because my kids might go through there thinking this is candy. Yeah. So to me, it's very similar. You're, you're sort of basically, some of this is based on how old the child is, but you don't, you don't just tell your kids nothing about medication being bad because you want them to not use it, right? So you want to educate them about that. I want to know what uh, you learned because Mike alluded earlier. He said you came in. He said you came in not knowing anything, and you even said like, "I, I don't understand why why guns? Why even have a gun? Why have multiple guns?" What did you learn through the course of those conversations that changed your mind? I think the first thing I learned the most about was safe storage. Like I had no idea all <laughs> the ways you could store something. So I I kind of lightened up a little bit. I was like, "Oh, okay." And I was kind of laughing at myself because I was thinking you have such a harsh view about this when you really didn't know that much about it. Like, you know, like I was kind of chiding myself saying, you could at least looked it up. You Google everything else. You could have Googled this and found out more about it. That was one thing. I think um, I also really, really learned to listen and not, and not have preconceived notions about what it meant. I remember we had one session where one of the group members was displaying their guns. And I was very honest about that. It was made me really uncomfortable. Um, it was, and I, it was weird because I didn't, I didn't, re, I've never had that kind of response before, but it was, I was just really physically feeling uncomfortable. And, um, and I shared that in the group. So I said, you know, the imagery of this white male with all these guns evokes a certain response in me that it may not evoke in other people and in part because of my cultural background. And I also shared that I thought if a black person did that, it would be a different response to that, that level of gun ownership. So I, but, but in spite of that, I learned to kind of listen with an open mind and not prejudge what that did or didn't mean. Um, and, to, and so it really made me see that I think, I, like I didn't realize there's a gun culture, but I do now. And I also learned that, it, that the perception of gun ownership and what it means to own a gun is very, very different. And that, that because my view is different doesn't make my view right. It's just different. And I think I'm probably, you'll be shocked, Mike, I'm probably more open to gun ownership now. <laughs> Thinking uh, that I need to store it safely. <laughs> and then part of me just kind of said, my husband and I just talked about this yesterday. I said, you know, his dad owned a gun when he was growing up. I didn't even know that. And my dad didn't. Both our parents, my father was career military. Um, but then as we were talking, because I've been talking more about what Convergence has done, I'm finding out that more and more people in my church own guns. And this would not have come up before, probably because they knew I was against gun ownership. So they didn't. So what happens is people don't get rid of their guns. They just don't talk to you about it. And so I said, I said to my husband, you know what, we should have a discussion about this in church. I mean, I'm not naive because we have police officers in our congregation. So I know that, but I was like, you know what, we I like we could have someone like Mike come and talk to our congregation about safe storage because at this point, now that we they know I've been doing this convergence group, we have a more open dialogue about gun ownership. Where before they just because they knew I was against it, they just didn't talk about it. That's, I think I always think that's bad. That's awesome. When we're, yeah, when we're not going to talk about it, then that's not good. And that has to, I'll be honest with you, that has to come from us because we're the leadership. We have to model the behavior we want people to engage in. So. That's on us. Yeah, I don't understand. It's one thing that I've never understood, and things are going to change, Sherry, because um, the black community is one of the fastest growing gun 
ownership, like, you know, demographics that's coming up and rightfully so, right? Like if, if, if you feel like, like the world's caving in on you and things are getting bad, like defend yourself. I think, you know, I think everyone has a right to defend themselves. Um, I don't know if it was the media movies, how black gun ownership just got pegged as like gangsters, right? Like that's the thing that always confused me is why, you know, like you said, why does a white man storm a Capitol building, right? And have firearms out and about and nobody says a word, but it's a different story when you you paint this other picture, right? For the underprivileged, underserved communities. Um, and I think we've gotten away from just understanding that some communities, police don't go, they, they don't show up. Like you can call the police and they won't show up, period. And then there's I, other, you know, little cultural differences where, you know, no one's going to talk to the police if they do show up because you don't want to get yourself killed that way, right? In the community. Um, but it's like we kind of ignore everybody that's like, I own a firearm because this is not the safest neighborhood for me to be in, but this is the only place that I can live or this is where my family's from. And, you know, and and it's like you shouldn't be punished just just because like you want to defend yourself. Yeah, I think one of the things that, you know, that we should talk more about in the group is that gun ownership tends to be criminalized in the black community. So when people when people hear you own a gun or you have a gun, then people automatically think you're engaging in criminal activity or illegal activity. And they also equate that with being violent. So that if you, and we've seen the videos, unfortunately, where people have been stopped, where someone has said, you know, a black man has said, I have a gun, I'm, I have a permit to carry and still got shot and was trying to get the gun out. And so I'm trying to show you what I'm doing. And, and that happens. I think the other thing um, about the police not, people not trusting the police, which I think is sad. Now I'm a middle-aged black woman and I'm gonna be honest with you, this is a true story. I spent two summers teaching in Korea and I lost my wallet. And so and there's not, crime rates really low in Korea compared to here. So several people told me you should go to the police department and see if someone turned your wallet in. I was like, oh yeah, right. And they were like, no, 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 go. So I went. The people there um, didn't didn't speak English well, and so they're talking amongst themselves, and then they say, come with us. I said, okay. And then I got really scared. I mean, like, for real scared. And so I was like, oh, you know, S-H-I-T, I don't know about this because I'm in a foreign land. I don't really know a lot of people here, and I don't speak the language. And so I, this is true. I wrote on my Facebook page what was happening. And I said, just in case something happens to me, I want you all to know what's going on. And I felt, I mean, part of me said, well, just don't go. But then part of me was saying, this is stupid. You know, don't, why are you scared? So I got in the car. They, they took me to another station. And this is the, the moral of the story is they took me to the second station because the people spoke English better there so they could help me more. And I almost cried. I, I was so upset. I was upset that I was scared. I mean, because I'm getting emotional now. I was thinking, why am I scared? You're like, I should, these people were just trying to help me. They went out of their way to help me. They took the information down. They took me back to my apartment. They were like, where, and I'm like, that's okay. I'm gonna go um, get the, 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 the train, the Metro. And they're like, no, 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 where do you live? And I was like, I told them and they brought me back home. Did you ever get an answer to that question as to why you were scared as, as much because as you Because I, I knew my husband and I were talking about it. And, and I said, he said, what did you think was going to happen? I said, I, because I associate the police with not helping you. 
So in my mind, you know, they, they were like, and it's like it started off with talking to one person. When we went outside, it was two of them came too. I don't know why two came, but I was like, uh, 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 like where am I going? Will I disappear? You know, and even even though I could intellectually say to myself, "You're a, you're a foreigner in a foreign," they're not going to do anything to you. You're a you know middle aged white black woman. Who what's going to happen to you? This other more visceral part of me was like, mm, "This not, police are not safe." You know, the police are not safe, and so. And I'm not saying I've had a whole lot of bad interactions with the police. I've had a few, but not really to be compared to my son. But, you know, my son, when he was going to school, we actually let him drop earlier than the other two. Our two we have two girls and a boy. He's in the middle just because I knew because he kept getting stopped by the police on his way to school. Seriously. So even though they knew that there was a multicultural high school in this neighborhood in Northern Virginia, and even though, you know, the neighborhood wasn't particularly um, integrated, but the kids at the school were. And even though this is a very preppy school, let me tell you, I would pay a lot of money to put that boy in that school. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and we did all that to keep him safe. I see Mike nodding, keep him safe. He still got stopped. And I didn't know until the dean of students brought it to my attention and said, we really are so sorry that Jelani keeps getting pulled over by the police. And we've talked to them several times. And I was like, what? And my son never said anything to me about it. So we let him drive to school as soon as he could get a learner's permit and drive independently, we let him do it because it was safer for him to be in the car than it was for him to just get off the bus and walk to school. And we prided ourselves on our kids taking public transportation. We didn't want them to be cutesy and privileged. And we're like, no, take the bus like everybody else. You know, we, we were with him, we were like, uh, no, we're not gonna do that. And so unfortunately people do get the message that talking to the police is not safe and it's not helpful, including middle-class, middle-aged black women. I felt that way too. And I feel bad that I feel that way, but I do. Yeah, I can't help but wonder how many other people didn't get assistance in whatever they needed because of their own preconceived notions about it. And when bringing it back to the clinical community, why are people taking their own lives? Because they don't trust me, you, you know, whoever has the post-nominal letters that say, you know, therapist, um, not to turn them in, call CPS, you know, whatever it is. And um, the, the police have a PR problem. Our, our profession has a PR problem. Um, I can't speak for the police. I've worked with them for years. I come from a family full of cops. I can speak for my profession, though, and I know that for generations we've just self-stigmatized by retreating into the shadows, tacking up our shingle, and then telling students in schools, if you see your patients in public, don't acknowledge them. It's like, what kind of message does that send? You know, um, it's, it's horrible. And so we got to do a better job telling people that we're, we're non-judgmental, even though we all tell ourselves that, you know, that we're a safe, warm space to come and work through your stuff. And, um, and we got to do a better job communicating that. I think the police probably need to do a better job too, but, um, it's, it's a, it's, that's a, that's a cultural shift that has to happen. And it's going to have happen over years, not, you know, uh, one campaign on Instagram. So, uh, I appreciate the vulnerability by the way, and you sharing that. Cause I think that's, that's not a story that a lot of people are necessarily willing to tell about <laughs> their, their own prejudices, right. And how they push through them, um, as well as with the, with the gun, uh, thing. So, 
on on the heels of that, I want to I want to shift because I think our listening audience is going to benefit from this. Talk about your work in integrating the faith community, not just with firearms, but also with HIV and AIDS, because I think that's really cool because it's the same the same thread runs through where you're taking mm-hmm. suspicion and removing it by introducing normal dialogue. So you captured it. You, the next time I write a grant, I'm going to have you and Mike do that, <laughs> and I'll get the grant. <laughs> Maybe you could teach us how to write grants. That's it. <laughs> It's really to normalize the conversation and to take, and the way we can remove stigma is to make mental health challenges part of our everyday language and HIV infection. So on the, I'll just talk about the HIV part for a second. So um, the program that we do is basically trying to figure out how we can help young people get help. And the first component of that was, uh, uh, we're finishing up the um, data collection on this right now, is asking young people like, so when you are at risk for HIV, and we look at the different risk factors, which by the way, risk factors for suicide and risk factors for HIV are pretty similar. Um, you know, who what, what you do you, talk- let me interrupt real quick. What do you mean by that so that everybody uh, understands how, what are the risk, risk factors? High risk beha- sexual behaviors tend to have depression, anxiety, substance use problems, lack of cohesion with their family, sense of being socially isolated. They're almost identical risk factors. Interesting. So, um, so we were asking young people, so like, again, who, who do you talk to about this? And um, one of the things that was bothersome for me is particularly in the black church, the black church tends to be more progressive on some topics, but around sexuality, it's less, it's more conservative. So the kids are sexually active, but no one's talking about that in church. So we went to the church and said, okay, look, we can either put our head in the sand and pretend like the kids are not sexually active, which they are, or we could assume that they're sexually active, which they are, and then talk about what to do about that. A lot of churches initially want to talk about abstinence. I'm not against talking about abstinence, but I'm also going to be honest and say abstinence typically doesn't work. So it, it's true. If you, if you don't have sex, will you get HIV? No, you won't. That's very true. But the issue is, how do you get the people to stay abstinent? <laughs> so that's really hard. So let's pretend that just in case they aren't abstinent, you know, abstinent, then what else? What's our plan B? And, and you know, I, I like Mike's program because it's a plan B. So I always feel like you need a plan B and at least C. Don't just wait for plan A to fail. We already know the kids are going to probably have sex and black kids tend to have sex earlier or younger. So we really need to, to make an impact in this community. So why can't we talk about this in church? I, this, I, should be, we, this should be a safe space to talk about anything. I would right? like to know that, actually, because, I, I mean, I, I go to church. I'm a very active member in my church. And we don't, we don't talk about that either. And I think we need to. We also don't talk about guns. Um, and it's really interesting. You say they're, you know, we're progressive on certain issues but not others. Do you have any idea why? Because, like, scripture doesn't really say that you should keep things taboo. No, it doesn't. So that's a great, that's a good theological question. We're actually doing this series in my church and for my wider denomination on sexuality in the black church. I'm teaching tonight on, on Romans, which talks about homosexuality. And so what we talk about is, I like what you said earlier. You want to be enlightened and fully informed. So our so our deal is this. We 
whether we're talking about HIV prevention, suicide prevention, we are not here to change your theology, but I want your theology to be fully informed. So in other words, I don't want you to base your decisions based on tradition. I don't want you to say, you know, I don't believe black people complete suicide because big mama and them said the people didn't do it during slavery. And I, my challenge to that is you don't know what people did to slavery because they didn't keep records. We do know that about a million people jumped off the ship on the way, right? We know that. So what is that? That's people completed suicide. Yeah. We do know that um, up until, oh, the 1970s, we didn't disaggregate um, suicide rates, death rates by race. So we actually right. don't know what the rates were right. because it was white and other. And so we don't really know what that was anyway. Also, it's kind of a disservice, I think, to the Black community to, to keep saying, you know, we are resilient. We are resilient, but that doesn't mean that we don't have vulnerabilities. And resiliency and vulnerabilities are not mutually exclusive. Because part of the problem, I think, is, is this notion that you have to be so resilient that you're unbreakable. I'm like, but sometimes the conditions break you. And how will we change those conditions if we think that we are invincible and we can undergo and withstand anything? So that's actually, to me, it's not helpful. The church needs to be the place, if there's no other place, where it's a haven for you. And part of it being a haven is being honest. So if we know kids are sexually active, why are they, you know, we could talk about why they're sexually active, but while we're working on that, we need to keep them safe because HIV can lead to AIDS, which can lead to death. And I, you know, I share with people, do you want your, do you want to know your kids sexually active so you can prevent that? Or do you want to pretend like they're not sexually active? Because that's, that's what our behavior right now is saying. We're going to pretend like you're not sexually active because my need to preserve your innocence is so high that I'm willing for you to die for it. And I'm not willing to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm so glad you said that. I'm just not. So I, when my kids went to college and I got a lot of flack for this, I bought each one of my kids, male and females, a box of condoms. They were embarrassed. And I told them, fine, put them under the pillow, whatever you're going to do. I put them in the suitcase myself to make sure they got there. <laughs> so you know, I had to call my husband and say, uh, I've never bought condoms before, so what kind do you buy? But, you know, I meant that because I felt like I, I could give them the speech about it, but I wanted them to be safe. And it's the same thing with suicide. I mean, I can pretend that kids don't get depressed, but they do. And I can pretend that kids don't get anxious, but they do. I can pretend that kids are not gay, but they are. You know, so I'm like, so... I want us to deal with things as better as they are, not how we wish they would be or could be. And I'm not saying that those other things can't be goals, but in the meantime, back at the farm, these kids are struggling. And when there's when we have the suicide rates that we have, regardless of race and young people, that's on us too. That's a, that speaks to our culture, our wider society, that that kids are living in situations that are intolerable to them. And that we're willing to let them die because we, we want to be in denial about that. Two big things that jump out at me there, uh, and parents, if you're listening to this, this is directly applicable. One is it has to do with what we try to do in the, in the clinical world. We want to provide, we're not responsible for somebody else's change. We're responsible for providing an environment that's conducive to change. Well, what does that environment look like? It looks like somebody who's, who trusts you enough to open up, to allow uh, new information to help them to change their minds, their behaviors, their patterns, their emotional understanding, whatever it may be. And if parents aren't providing that environment at home, 
the kids aren't going to open up to you. So we, we want to invite parents to create the environment that allows their children to come forward with topics with which they struggle, whether it be bullying or academic failure or whatever it may be, you know, and, and including social issues like sexual activity and depression, anxiety. Um, what I, what I picked up on there is one major theme is we're really giving permission that it's okay. Right. And, um, by leading by example, if we go first and talk about it and talk about our own vulnerabilities, then the children are watching going, Oh, okay, well, if dad's doing it or church leaders doing it or gun community leaders doing it, maybe I can do it too. And know that I'm not going to be judged or otherwise cast off or invalidated in the process. So, you know, the concept of permission giving sounds a little like, uh, you know, an authoritarian one up, one down power differential. And it is, and it's because parents are in charge of their children. They do have to give permission to certain things. And similarly, they can communicate a non-permission giving environment where the, the child hears certain language, certain phraseology and says, I'm, I'm not welcome to come forward with whatever it is that's on my mind. And the second thing that jumps out at me is you, you mentioned not doing things out of tradition. And, and I often refer to it as orthodoxy. And I think a lot of our orthodoxy and again, in the counseling world, psychology world broadly is we've just done things a certain way and that's the way we'll always do them. And it continues to get handed down from professors to students. Students become interns. The supervisors to the interns say this, they parrot the same phraseology and we end up with a clinical community that hides in the shadows and we have stigma, right? Um, I think what we want to do is make sure that we're, I guess that we're, we're challenging that orthodoxy in a respectful way that doesn't just say, I'm kicking in the door and we're going to do things differently now. We want to honor the reasons for the traditions. And and those reasons are very good. And I'll give an example. My church, for example, we do uh, tithes and communion uh, talks every every Sunday. Somebody from the congregation gets up and, um, and they're, they're part of the worship group and we rotate through. But they get up and they say, all right, so hey, church congregation, it's, we're going to take uh, communion now and here's why. And they'll speak something that's on their heart. Maybe they'll reference scripture. Or maybe it's just practical knowledge like communion draws from the word to commune, which means to come together and so forth. And we don't want to lose the intentionality behind the tradition or the or the ritual. And tithes are the same way. It's like, why do we give? Well, we give because we're commanded to, but also it demonstrates trust. So I think when we're challenging orthodoxy and we're challenging tradition, we want to back build the reasons behind it and then say, is this still working? And right. in certain areas, it's just, it's just not working when we got youth who are doing things behind our backs that are clearly unhealthy. And we know that because we're the adults. We want to tell them and also tell the adults who have held on to the tradition so long that they don't want to move from it because that challenges ego and it threatens, you know, worldview and beliefs and stuff. And in the gun community, it's the same thing. It's like, hey, guys, you know, maybe maybe staging your guns uh, chambered, loaded, unlocked, you know, unlocked and stuffed under cushions isn't the the right thing to do. I know that's what you've been taught from your your dad or whatever. Um, however, we're noticing that children are taking their lives with increasing right. alarming frequency. And a lot of times they're using the guns that are unsecured to do it. And so we can be respectful and say, look, we understand that you want you want to be safe. We understand that you you don't want to acknowledge this sinful behavior, whatever it is. And simultaneously, we got to change it. So who's in charge of changing it? You, you leadership, you know. So I really appreciate the way that you framed all that. I think it's it's really important. And if parents can hear that message and say it's okay to to do things that you knew growing up in your own parenting philosophy and also evolve to integrate new information then great. It'll, it'll make for a better environment for your kids to come to you when they're struggling. 
Yeah, I love what you said about giving permission, because I think that's the, the role that the faith-based community can really play, which is give people permission to talk about these things. So um, <clears throat> in my other suicide prevention world, a lot of times people will say to me, well, you know, the church says the suicide is an unpardonable sin, so we can't talk about that. I'm like, stop for a second. There are other theological challenges in the church that we talk about all the time. This is just another one of those things. One, I've done, um, in my Master's of Divinity degree, I actually did my paper on suicide in the, in the Bible. There is no text that says suicide is an unpardonable sin. Right. one. <laughs> okay. yeah. Two, that's a theological position. And we can, we're not going to try to argue theology because we can go back and forth forever on that. But it gets back to what you said earlier, which is that let's agree that we don't want people to lose their lives. So what can we do to talk about the situations that people find themselves in? Not whether it's a sin or not, but the situations that people find themselves in where, where suicide becomes a viable option. And what can the church do about those situations? I think a, a one major common theme among people who experience suicidal ideation, including those who have attempted and survived, is that the the phrase, and I'm going to use I'm going to use a common phrase, even though I disagree with the language. They feel, and it's not a feeling; it's a belief. They feel trapped. So, I'm not going to go on a rant about feelings versus thoughts. That's that's my YouTube channel. Um, but uh, but the idea is that if you believe that you're trapped, meaning you don't see any way out. Uh, the responsibility for untrapping somebody is on the people who are doing the trapping, and that would be the church, the parents, the schools, the counselor. Whoever's sending the message of judgmentalism and non-acceptance needs to change that in recognition that the continued statements are, I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know where else to go. The HR department, the bosses at work, the supervisor, you know, like whoever's sending the message that it's quote-unquote unacceptable or, um, or that you're going to lose your job to, just because you acknowledge that you're struggling with alcoholism or depression or whatever it is. Um, we in the leadership positions need to change that. We need to create the warm, welcoming environment where we can send a message of rehabilitation is okay. And not only is it okay, it's, it's more or less commanded if you want a productive workforce, if you want healthy children. Because if not, you're just sending the message that you go ahead and stay a liability to everybody else and we're just going to pretend that it's not. And that's, that's unhealthy. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. So I think the, the I know in my own church, um, people talk really openly about their mental health now. But I also tell people it took awesome. a while. I mean, I did sermons and still do sermons on, on depression and suicide in the Bible. I do Bible study lessons. I just told you we're doing the sexuality part um, in our, it's an eight week series. And we talk about sexuality. I think one of the misunderstandings about the HIV crisis is people don't understand human sexuality. Mm -hmm. We spend two classes on that. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm at the end of the day, you can still think what you want to think. I'm not trying to change what you think, but I want you to be fully informed. Right. So that now, when you're whatever you think, you're thinking it because you have more information available to you. And I also think you're right. I mean, we, we if, because I, we, I have a pastor once in a former church who, whose dad was an alcoholic. And so his thing was, you should not ever drink. And I remember telling him one time, you know, right, people are still drinking. They're just not going to talk to you about it. So it's, this is not an issue of, of you agreeing with the behavior. This is an issue of, or do you have a space where people can come to you even if you disagree with their behavior? Just like as a parent, I don't always agree with my children's choices, but I want them to be able to talk to me about the choices that I don't like too. And, sure. you know, 
Go ahead, Tyler. No, sorry. I was going to ask you have, you, have you seen that since you're bringing this like brutal honesty and things like that to, to your community in the church, have you, I mean, these stories can be anecdotal, I get it, but like, have you seen a shift or a change? Oh my God, yes. Yes. I think one of the most powerful things we did, um, every July is, um, it's called BIPOC now, Black and Indigenous People of Color Mental Health Awareness Month. And it used to be called Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. And each, maybe about six or seven years ago, I started asking people in the church to tell their stories. I mean, I would do all the other stuff that Jake and I normally do. We would have health fairs. And you probably know uh, Jake and Mike too. When you have a health fair at a church about mental health, the people who come are the choir that already know all the stuff and the people who need the help to come. And so I was getting frustrated. I was like, we have all these people from the community coming in and we, you know, we have a good turnout, but we have people who are already like-minded. This is not really helping the other people. And so um, I was telling my husband, it's like, so this month we're gonna do people tell their stories. And my husband's laughing at me saying, this stigma, babe, they're not going to tell their story. I was like, I'm just going to, one of the things about a pastor you need to know, you ask people directly, they almost never tell you no. So I asked people directly. I was like, hi, can you talk about, and initially there was some hesitancy because we're, we also post our videos on YouTube and Facebook. And I was saying, now this is going to be posted. So the first year we had a mom who was raising a child who was autism talked about parenting, but one person talked about being raised by a bipolar mom. We, my youngest daughter suffers from depression. She talked about her depression. She's about 16 then. And I can't think of the fourth person. The one who brought down the house was my daughter. And the only thing I said to her was, just talk about your own experience. Um, I like it if you could be positive about counseling, but if you don't want to be, that's up to you. So I had no idea what she would say. She talked about being bullied in high school. She talked about counseling and how it helped her. People were crying. People came up to me after service. Can I get a referral? Pastor Sherry, could you put some information on the bulletin? Can we have a community table with this information on it? We were like, blab. We were like, whoa, get out of here. The following year, one of the men in the church told his story about dealing with anxiety. That really broke the yoke for everybody. Because then the men realize, in fact, he's a police officer. So the men realize, oh, I could be a cop and be macho and talk about depression and having to take medication. That His take talking about medication really broke the yokes for that. So slowly but surely, I started doing more sermons about it. And I pushed my um, other colleagues and said, I can't be the only person doing these sermons because I'm a mental health professional. I need people who are not mental health professionals to do it, too. So, so I would say fast forward, people talk really openly. People go to therapy. People are, they're also much better at identifying early warning signs. Recently, we had a family member who, um, their child has tics. And so we were watching and Mike, J- I mean, Jake knows this. So when kids are really young and they have tips, sometimes this can roll into OCD. And so as soon as I saw that, I told the mom, can I talk to you for a second? Not to alarm you, but you may want to get this checked out. And and she has. (laughs) So, and then she shared that because we did the other sharing and caring testimonies. She shared about her daughter and then people were very supportive. And I also share with them, sometimes your blessing is sitting next to you and they have information that you need because they've gone through your experience, but they don't know that because you're keeping your stuff to yourself. You're keeping it a secret. And then we do a lot of sermons about the destructiveness of secrets. That's a you good know, one. 
Yeah, that's not healthy. And and there's no text in the New Testament anyway in the Christian community where Jesus said it was good to keep a secret. <laughs> there's no text that right. says that. So what? how do people get healed in the community? Because people know about what's going on and they either know to get Jesus or they know to talk to somebody else so the person get, gets help. That's how they get helped. Mike, I'll uh, piggyback on that and, and say the same thing happened in my own church um, several years ago. Uh, so I'm, I'm recovering Catholic, um, <laughs> so I know <laughs> I know orthodoxy really well. Um, and it took me several years to go back to church. I was doing Bible studies uh, on campus, and then after I graduated off campus with some 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 uh, football players, I was I, I never played football, but I knew a lot of them, and so I was attending those things. And and then finally, you know, despite the repeated uh, invitations, that I always declined. And then finally, I said, "All right, I'll go to your church, fine." Because I, in my head, I knew what church was, right? But it wasn't. I was in a middle school cafeteria with these guys, and um, eventually, uh, that church ended up folding. But I was like, "Oh, this is cool! Like it's it's intellectual, it's heady, it's not just rote routine ritual." And uh, so then, eventually, I get into my church now, where I've been for about ten years, and I was only about two years in. So you got to keep in mind, like I'm still in my head, I'm still green. I'm a novice. I don't, I don't really have any confidence in my own, in my own theology. And my pastor says, Hey, I'm going to be out of town, uh, the week of blah, blah, blah. Uh, would you like to give the teaching? I was like, me, what am I going to talk about? I don't, I don't know chapter and verse. And so in a panic, uh, you know what I taught Mike? I taught yield theory. And oh, uh, wow. and I grabbed I grabbed uh, Christian Conti, who's a friend and a mentor of mine. He created this yield theory, Sherry. Um, he, the book is called Walking Through Anger. It talks all about yield theory. There's seven basic components to it, and I, I substantiate each of them by with scripture. And I thought this wow. sounds a lot like Jesus. And uh, and I gave that that talk, and um, and it and it was awesome. It was so awesome. And something that my pastor Louis has uh, said repeatedly is. Um, God answers prayers with people. And I think that the blessings that you mentioned that are sitting right next to us are God answering prayers through people. And if we don't have people testifying to their own experiences and giving that permission to the broader audience, they're not going to get the help because they just don't know that it's possible because they need to see it sometimes. They need to know that somebody they know and trust is right next to them, has been there the whole time, has dealt with this thing. And so coming forward and sharing those stories has really helped. And I've seen the ripple effect through my church where I've seen marriages heal and I've seen children overcome addictions and I've seen people battle back their anxiety and uh, people getting healthier physically, losing weight. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. They're all, they're all accessing counseling services, either professionally or through the, through the leadership, you know, the, the elders. Um, it's really, really powerful. And so that's all to say that these two things that we tend to think are standing opposed to each other um, are not. They actually are way more similar than we probably ever give them credit and I, I, um, I, I'm very emotional about that. Now we, now we talk about emotional functioning too, because you know there's a lot of uh, people in the church who say, you know, don't don't feel. You're not supposed to have especially not that emotion of anger, right? You know, it's like, uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger. It doesn't mean don't have anger. It's, it says just don't. Yeah, I mean, act you should try to reconcile. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's been great, um, and I, I know we're seeing the same thing in the gun community with what what Mike's doing, and what what our board members are doing, and the people we touch. They're they're finding that it's okay to ask for help um, and own guns, and you know the closeted gun owners are no longer closeted, and um, I count myself among those people, and it's been really great. It's it, it, we are seeing a lot of help and healing, and um, it's been 
And it's been very powerful. One of the things I did learn too, Mike, um, and you helped me a lot with this, I didn't know that gun owners felt stigmatized. I was shocked by that. I was like, really? Um, and that, uh, yeah, I was just, you know, or even like certain phrases mean certain things in that community. I was surprised about that. I remember we were talking about means restriction and that was a real visceral response to that. And I was like, oh no, I'm just talking about any means. I, when I say I'm doing a means assessment, I don't, I don't have a method in mind. I'm trying to find out what the method is, but I don't, I'm not automatically thinking guns. And so just things like that, like what kinds of phrases do we use? What kind of terminology that we use, which could be triggering in different communities. That was also really enlightening for me as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really, because for me, Sherry, it was the same thing. I, I wasn't a gun guy going into guns. It'd be like literally me having a career in golf, right? Like, I, I don't know anything about it. I don't do it. <laughs> you know, um, so I went through that same process. Um, I was super naive when I first got into the firearms industry. And I didn't even understand why certain things were. Like, why are people freaking out about this? Why are people freaking out about registries? You know, what, you know not realizing that some of the very laws that are creative created really only affect the underprivileged underserved communities, right? Like uh, just learning all that stuff. It's, it's, it's really eye-opening. So it's, that's what I mean. It was really exciting to kind of watch your growth with, not that I said that you jump to the firearm side, right. But like just understanding it now and knowing that you probably would be able to talk to a stranger who, who came in like you and I did where we're like, I don't get it. Um, so my analogy, we I love the sleeve on your arm. Mike, I don't think they can't see you, but he has a sleeve with tattoos. So <laughs> 15 years ago, I would see people with tattoos. I'd go, that's ridiculous. You're marring your body. Blah, 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 blah. And then my son uh, is an artist. And so he he put a tattoo on his arm. It's my name, but it's in roses. So I asked him, I said, so explain this to me, like why you need to do this. And he said, mom, it's an art. And I'm an artist and part of one canvas is, is your is your skin. And he said, it's really personal. And I was like, wow, guess who has tattoos now? You did it? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and guess great. who designed my tattoos? My son. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And my husband and I, we laughed at all these middle-aged people with these tattoos. And, and you know, Jake might be able to appreciate this. You know, that's where the stigma comes in, right? Because sometimes I've gone to a church to preach and mine are on my ankle and my foot. And I've, I've said, oh, can I go to this church? I mean, is this going to be a problem? So I have, a, a, in a real small way, a sense of, of how it feels on another level to be prejudged without knowing me. I'm like, you don't know, because I have a tattoo on my side of my foot and my ankle, you don't know anything about me. You know, you don't know anything, but you don't even know what it means to me. And my mine have my the one on my ankle has um, it's a butterfly with my children's names in it. It's very personal. And the one on my foot, which was very painful, so don't do that. But the one on my foot is for my grandchildren. And so, so for me, it's a very deep personal meaning. And I think before, if I said nothing else to your audience, before you prejudge with either community, please listen. And, and listen openly, and, and uh, you'd be surprised what you might learn. How, how did you make that shift, though? Like, so even when you saw it, because he, he did something really funny to you, I'd say, is like, how do you, 
get upset at somebody who has a tattoo of your name, <laughs> right? Like, well, I couldn't. That's what the thing I was like. <laughs> I was like, because I, I said to him, okay, you're going to do tattoos, fine, but don't do it where you can see him. So he comes home. I want you to see this. And I was, I was about to start fussing. And then I looked and I said, is that my name? He goes, yeah. I started crying. And I was like, oh. Yeah. So, so even then though, how long does that process take for you to say like, maybe I want to get one of these? Was it, I mean, it wasn't um, instant. No, but it was not too long after that. Cause maybe a year or two after that, then we went through, then I went through a period of, yes, I want one, but I really want to think about what it is. And uh, one day he just came to me and said, mom, cause I said to him, I want something that represents the three of you guys. So he came to me and said, mom, what do you think about this butterfly? I don't necessarily have an affinity for butterflies. Like, okay. And then, but when I saw he put their initials in the wings, I was like, oh, yeah, this is it. And then the one on my foot, I just always thought it was sexy. Probably <laughs> midlife prices or something. No, no, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> I had no idea it was going to hurt that much, though. So I do plan to get another one. I'm just trying to figure out. Back this summer, I only got two weeks to go because I said I was going to do it before school starts. But I don't know. I know what I want. I don't know where now. So, I like yours, Mike, and that might be where it goes because this is pure vanity. I feel like my arms need to look like guns if I'm going to do my upper arm. I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was like, where is a place that's not going to look flappy? So that's where I am right now, trying to figure that part out. My husband has more than me now. He has one. He has one of, he has our church logo, which is really beautiful. He has my name on the other arm. And our anniversary, and he had he's a kidney donor. That's the one I love the best, and it's on this part of his arm. And it's uh, my son designed that one too. It's it's a sword going through a kid- kidney, and it's like this really beautiful green glowing around. It's gorgeous. And um, so yeah, I mean, I it just you know it's my sort of funny but for real way of saying be open minded because you know you evolve and you don't. People are like I would never do that. You don't know what you would never do. Right. If we, I could, I would probably pierce my nose too. I don't know if I'm going to do that or not, but you know, I think you just you evolve. I think what we think about HIV, what we think about suicide, you know, I do want to share with your audience that suicide, if you think it's an unpardonable sin, then I would challenge your understanding of grace. Yeah, grace is is un is un it's unmerited. It's not something you could ever earn. But to say that something is unforgivable says that grace has a limit. And I don't think grace has a limit. Well, it's really disingenuous to put limits on somebody else's gift. Especially if that gift comes from God, you know. It's right. like, yeah. You're, you're going to be so arrogant as to tell us what the limits of God are? I don't know. I don't know about and that. And I like what Jake said earlier that people who, people who have survived suicide attempts almost to a person will tell you, it's not that they want to die per se, but they feel trapped and they don't know another way out and they're tired. And uh, I don't know if you all watch the Olympics. I was what we watch everything in the Olympics and we we're I was looking at water polo. And so I was, you know, me, I Googled everything. I was like, how do they stay up that long? They tread water the whole time. And so they were talking about they tread water. There's a specific kick they use that, that helps them not get as tired. So I was wondering, I, my analogy for people who are thinking of suicide is like that. It's like you're treading, you're treading, you're treading, but after a while you get tired and you don't, you don't know there's another kick. You don't know there's another kick that you could do that would make you less weary. 
And so since you don't know that, you give up. And I think the community's job is to say, well, wait a minute, there's this other kick you don't know about, but it's there. And you know what? You don't even have to tread water. Why don't you lay back on me and I'm going to hold you up while you get better. And then it doesn't mean you won't tread water again, but it means right now you just need some help with that. And, and I, I just got in the water, so I got lots of energy. So I can hold both of us up until you get your energy back. What a beautiful analogy. That's a great metaphor. And I'm, and I'm stealing it. <laughs> In the preaching world, we steal stuff from each other all the time. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's, uh, that is really true. Um, yeah, the, the, the helping professions, and I throw, you know, pastorship in there too. Um, we're, we often, not only do we resist asking for help because we're the ones who are supposed to be helping, but then we don't acknowledge to each other that we need help because uh, you don't want to, quote unquote, be a burden to, to the others, right? Because right? you know that they're already overburdened because you are, right? Um, and it's just, it speaks to that that limitless grace, but it also speaks to the depth of what people are able to endure, which is infinite. You know, the, the human capacity is infinite. If you believe in a divine creation, which I do, I think I think people are divine. And, um, and therefore, there is no limit to the divinity. We talk about this in terms of the psyche, too. If you go to, like, Carl right. Jung and his writings, um, you know, how limitless is it? Well, it's forever limitless, which means right. that, you know, any, any human that's ever done anything uh, is in human nature now. All those things are human nature. You being a human, therefore, possess the same nature to do anything, right. great and terrible, but there's no limit to it. So you can always do a little more. There is no, I can't take it anymore. Well, then what? It's like, well, self-death right. would be an option, but, you know, that's a choice. And it's a choice not to continue uh, when all the information we have says you can continue. You know, there's no such thing as can't take it anymore. Um, and also there, there, there are breakthroughs around the corner that, you know, yeah, again, when yeah. you're tired, you don't want to wait on that. And I think um, my youngest daughter is about to go to graduate school. And so um, and I, I want to tell you, I permit her permission to talk about her. I talk about her all the time. And, and and so we've been talking to her about her triggers because I said to her, now, look, you're going to get into graduate school and it's going to be, I'm telling you, it's going to be overwhelming the first month. And it has nothing to do with how smart you are. It's the amount of work. Most of the people go into doctoral programs are like, oh, you have to be brilliant. You don't actually have to be brilliant. You need to be well organized. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, the people in the in the doctor program are not more brilliant than people in the master's program. It's just organization, and so you're go, you're going to be overwhelmed because the sheer amount of work. And so I tell my undergraduate students, you are not going to be able to read everything I assign. Okay, so be smart, group up, divvy it up, take notes, and give each other now you know work together so that you can help each other out. And I was telling my daughter this. I said, so she's in a uh, East Asian studies program and they have to take a language and her language is going to be Chinese. Now this girl lived in China for two years by herself. She didn't know anybody when she went there and she's very fluent, but she's not confident in that. And so I told her, if you take the lower level Chinese class, I'm going to kick your butt. And she's like, mommy, I'm like, no, because you psych yourself out. I'm like, because you struggle in the beginning, well, doesn't mean you're going to struggle through the whole thing. It's going to be an adjustment. That's all. Let yourself have enough time to adjust. For those who are going through mental health challenges, yeah, it's hard right now, but to, hard today doesn't mean it's hard tomorrow. Right? Yeah. You know, when you work out, I'm trying to work out and do this boot camp stuff. And sometimes I'm like, whoa, I can't believe what I'm doing. But other times I'm like, 
okay, I'm out. But but what helps me is looking at the other people and like, well, they're not quitting. Right. So maybe I have a little bit more in me than I thought. And at the end, you know, I'm I'm always like amazed that I'm like I'm 64. I'm doing burpees and mountain climbers and you know, I'm up to 60 sit-ups a day and I'm working on my guns, Mike. So I'm trying, I'm up to 40 push-ups a day. <laughs> I mean, just little goals I set for myself. And it's and I'm like, why? There's no reason. It's just I'm challenging myself. That's all. I feel like I'm not trying to go out for the, you know, uh, bodybuilding or something like that. But it's just little goals that I set for myself to let me know I'm still in the game. And we all have to figure out what does that mean. It could be, you know, mentally, you may need to just push yourself. I know my patients, I say, go outside. You don't have to do anything. Go outside and get the mail and come back in. Put your clothes on today. If you have a pet, take your pet out. Mm-hmm. You know, make one phone call to one person. It doesn't have to be a long chat, five minutes, but just keep yourself in the land of the living until your breakthrough comes through. Yeah. And you're, <laughs> and you're growing through the process, right? You know, and, and growth requires being pushed into a disequilibrium. Yeah. Being, um, un- and being in an uncomfortable position sometimes. That's how you grow. And one yeah, of those, uncom- I, go ahead, Mike. No, as I say, I used to tell my daughters, because they hated getting up in the morning. And I said, when you get up, you get up in the morning and you get up early and you're up, you're already one and know. Like you won your first fight of the day, getting out of bed. Great analogy, yeah. Yeah. yeah I was going to say that, that people, I think, sometimes are afraid of growth because they're afraid of the pain that's involved. And some of that pain is just acknowledging that you don't know everything, which means you have to let go of a lot of those labels, the, the rigidity, the traditions, and say maybe – Maybe there is more. And if you're brave enough to invite that in, then you're going to find yourself growing. And the more you grow, it self-feeds. It becomes almost this, this uh, you know, positive feedback loop where you grow more and then you look back and go, oh, I want even more. I wonder what else is out there. So even if it's an ideological belief like tattoos or gun ownership or sexuality, or you're like, well, I'm going to take off the label that I put on because I needed to be safe, because I needed this thing to be what I needed it to be, and acknowledge that maybe it's more than that. And through that process, you find yourself taking down other fences and growing even further and becoming an even bigger blessing to others around you because you've grown and because you get to offer more after that growth. Sherry's going to find herself in a gun range here pretty soon, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) You're (laughs) laughing, but my youngest daughter went to a gun range. And I, I said, oh, okay. And she went because her godbrother works at a gun range. And so he, um, I don't know how they got on this, but some kind of way he was saying to her, you know, you need to be able to protect yourself. And she said, okay. And she went, I asked her, did she like it? She's like, it was okay. I said, you're going to go again. She's not sure. I, you know, be honest with you, if my guy, if he's where they're like play siblings, they grew up together. I mean, if he asked me to come to a gun range, I probably would because it's him. So don't don't count me out. He's gonna hear this podcast. You're gonna get that text message. No, I was like, okay, but I think I think I do want to convey again the importance of getting out of your comfort zone and listening because my initial response to um, Russell asking me about doing the convergence was, I don't need to talk to this group. I already know what I believe, and that's a really limited way to Mm -hmm. live. Mm -hmm. No, I'm glad you said that because I'm, I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't admit that. Yeah. You know, just say, well, I already know what I believe. I'm like, it's not saying, and, and again, I think it's important to know 
Convergence was not designed to change anybody's mind. It was just designed for us to listen. So I think if you don't feel like someone's trying to make you do something, something you referred to earlier, Jake, where it's not this authoritarian, you better, you better change your mind. It's just like, just listen. I think when we do our series on the sexuality in the black church, we're like, you can still believe what you believe at the end, but you now have more information to make the decision. Yeah, it's the same thing with gun ownership. You can still think you don't want anybody to have a gun, but now you understand better why people want a gun, right? <laughs> and you, you might still disagree with it, but at least you're, if you're more informed and hopefully you won't have these visceral, stereotypical responses when one can you like, this, this convergence has made me look at the news differently. Like even how they report the news differently. You know, and when things like when the, when the uh, January 6th incident happened, I was thinking about the gun community and I normally wouldn't have done that. I was like, wow, I wonder what they're thinking about all this. You know, wow, I wonder if this is upsetting to them. I wonder, you know, I just started thinking like that. That would not have occurred to me before. That's cool. Yeah, I, I'm the one thing I'm most impressed about convergence is the fact that we keep all showing up. And I think in this world, most people would, if you said, hey, we're going to have people show up 10, 12 times in a row that come from these different backgrounds and these different groups, people are going to fall off and we're still there. So in a time of uh, division and it's so popular to divide everybody and group them and everything like that, this group is kind of a breath of fresh air. It's, it's hope. You know what I mean? That we can sit yeah, down and be that's civil. That's such a good word. Yeah. I, it made me feel good. Like I was like, oh, you know, we got these really different people with these different perspectives sit down and, and be and disagree sometimes really vehemently, but just be polite and listening and not demonizing each other, but just saying, you know, oh, I don't, I don't see that. And, I, I, and, and it just made me really respect the, you know, without sounding too existential, but the human possibility is like you said earlier, like we really can be a whole lot more than we realize. That sounds like a great place to end. Yeah. I'm, I'm so happy that you did this. I didn't know how you, what you were going to say when I. Me either. I didn't know what we're doing it today. <laughs> no, but I was like, I don't want her to come on the podcast, but I don't want her to think it's like a super gun. Like, Hey, you know, cause some people are just like, I don't, I don't know what I, have to offer, but this is exactly what I knew you were going to be able to do. So I'm so glad you joined us today. Well, I have, I have to say, uh, Mike, I have so much respect for what you do that you're the reason I came really, I, because I trust you. And this is another good example of why we need to have these dialogues because you get to know each other, you trust each other. So even if you don't know exactly what the topic is going to be, what I did feel comfortable was you weren't going to ambush me. So I felt like whatever you asked me would be fine. And because you know Jake, and of course Jake's a mental health professional, I felt safe. <laughs> so I was like, fine, it's fine. That's all, more of that. You know, we need more of that. That exact attitude of like, well, my experiences so far have been pretty positive. I guess I can, I, I can generalize them to the next one. Hey, what's your shirt say, by the way? Um, Black Lives Matter. I wasn't. I could. I could only see the black, and I was. I wasn't sure. Yeah. There's a. There's an, my children gave me this shirt, and I. For a weird reason, um, initially wasn't wearing it because it made me sad that all these names were. You can't tell, but in it, the big white letters are the names of people who died from police violence. And so I, for wow, about six months, I couldn't wear the shirt. I am wearing it now because my uh, my I think my son gave me this, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna wear it. But but yeah, it's uh, 
you know, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> so yeah, it is. It, it might be worth uh, exploring too. The, the reason I asked though is I, I wasn't sure if it was Black Minds Matter, which is an organization also out of DC. Uh, oh, I didn't yeah. know if you're uh-huh. affiliated with that. I, I, I follow them on yeah. and uh, uh, Denisha Merriweather, I think is her name. Who is affiliated oh, with yeah. that? I think so. Yeah. But yeah, I, f- yeah, I follow her and and the organization on Twitter. They put out some really good stuff. They do. So, anyway, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I'm starting to get in the habit of asking guests if it, uh, you know one thing that they want the audience to take away. But Mike always has his question that he has to ask. So uh, be thinking about mine if you want to give an exhortation at the end. But Mike, okay. ask Sherry your patented trademarked question. Sherry, how do you how do you tend to your mental health? Good question. I play every day. I make it a requirement for my students. My graduate students in my class have to tell me every class what they did to play the week before. Um, and I actually do for my undergrads too. They put it in the chat. So, oh, uh, maybe wow, about fifteen years ago, I was doing all my stuff and. Um, I remember just feeling tired all the time. And so I'm 64 now, so I would have been 50 then. And I was thinking, <laughs> this is my bad day again. I'm not going out like this. I just, I can't, I can't act like an old person because I'm not yet. And I have a, mm-hmm. you can tell I have a really young spirit. So I'm, like, I'm just not going to do that. And so um, I was trying to figure out like, what can I do? And I would try different things, but wouldn't sustain them. And so then I was asking myself one day, like, so what can I do that's easy, that's doable, and I can do it every day? And I love to read. And so I made the decision to take in public transportation instead of driving to work, which was a big source of stress for me. D.C. traffic is horrendous. And so I um, started with reading on the train. And then I, but then, of course, you know, like stuff happens, a grant's due, a manuscript's due. and And then I had to say, Okay, no matter what is due, you're going to read. It doesn't matter. Nothing can interfere with that. And initially it was hard, but now I've been doing it for 15 years. Nothing interferes with my me time. And it's usually about 45 minutes in the morning, 45 minutes in the evening. Sometimes, like this morning, I I, um, did some stretching and some strength training. Shock, shock. I actually like strength training. I thought I hated it, but I actually like it better than cardio because I can actually see the differences. And also you can feel like and I can feel like I can do more sit-ups now than I can do some other stuff. Oh, I, you know, actually I'm getting stronger. So that for me is really relaxing. Um, and then, and so people always say to me, you're so calm all the time. It's not like magical or anything. It's more that I play every day and I take time for myself every day. And I don't really care what else is going on including, you know, writing sermons. I'm like, well, you might step at three in the morning to do that sermon, but you're still going to play. And I find that when I sort of prioritize myself, it's not a lot of time during the day, but it's an hour, hour and a half a day that I'm so much more relaxed and I feel more whole and I feel more valued. Like I value myself. Um, And I don't let any, even my granddaughter, who I love, who is my heart, she knows, like she'll come in and say, Mimi, are you, are you doing your me time? I go, yep. <laughs> and so she'll close the door and come back later because I'm not going to stop. That's awesome. That's super good advice too. Well, thanks. Um, what's one thing you want to send everybody off with other than, you know, grow a little every day? Grow a little every day. 
talk to each other. Talk to somebody that you wouldn't normally talk to hmm. about a topic that you know you already think you know everything. That's a good one. And I guess for the other, the last thing would be if you are suffering from mental health challenges, please get some help. You're not alone. You don't have to be alone. There are lots of solutions, including, and this will be shocking, but if you don't feel comfortable talking to a mental health professional, talk to somebody. Yep. Yep. Get the help that you need. Yep. 100%. Well, we sure appreciate you, Sherry. Um, thanks for carving out the time. Thanks for contributing. Um, you know, to making humanity better. And, uh, I, I think, I think our audience is going to really enjoy this. I know the first thing I'm going to do is, uh, tell my pastor to listen, cause I think you got some really great ideas we can integrate into our own church community. And I know he's going to be open to that. Um, really, can you really guys thankful. send me a link or something when it's ready. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Thank so. you so much for inviting me. This was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, I, I learned a ton, and I'm I'm always grateful. Yeah, I'm always grateful to, to hear other people's perspectives and give their you know listen to their testimonies and stuff that I can you know incorporate in my life. So uh, we want to make sure we thank Arms Corps, our sponsor for the podcast. Uh, they've been with us for a long time, and they're uh, very dedicated in putting our, our literature into their packaging. If you're a uh, firearms or accessories manufacturer we would love to have you on board and putting our stuff on your packaging or inside of your packaging as well uh thanks to my team at zephyr wellness for continuing to support this endeavor and allowing me to do the things that i do with it and uh, on behalf of our entire walk talk community and our zephyr wellness family we wish you all great mental wellness Bye-bye. guess who has tattoos now you did it Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and guess who designed my tattoos? My son. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.